Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. You're listening to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you in-depth and behind the scenes with the biggest names on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I talked to Zachary Quinto, the actor who's perhaps best known as the new Mr. Spock in the rebooted Star Trek movie franchise, but also a regular presence on stage, having starred on Broadway in The Glass Menagerie and Off-Broadway in the 2010 revival of Angels in America. Quinto is currently appearing in the Broadway revival of The Boys in the Band, and he's also got a new TV show hitting the small screen this month as the host and executive producer of the History Channel documentary series In Search Of. He's here in the studio with me to talk about all that and more. Hi, Zach. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Gordon. Um, so you've been doing Boys in the Band for several weeks now, mm-hmm. um, and you've got a few more weeks to go before the August 11th end date. How's mm-hmm. it been going? It's been incredible. It's yeah. been a great summer so far. Um, such a great group of friends working together, which is yeah, always nice. Yeah, you all nice. knew each other? A Most lot of, of you us knew did. each other? Yeah. yeah, a lot of us did. I've, uh, I went to college with Matt Bomer, so I've known him for 20-plus right. years. And that was at Carnegie Mellon? Is Carnegie that right? Carnegie Mellon, yeah. exactly. And uh, I knew Andrew and Jim socially. I've done a movie with Charlie Carver, a play with Brian Hutchison. So I didn't know Robin, Tuck, or Michael Benjamin. Right. But, um, but yeah, the rest... And, and, and other people have interconnectivity as well, you know, okay. so... That must have made influenced the sort of creation of that kind of atmosphere of these yeah. friends getting together for this party, right? Yeah, yes. I mean, it, you know, it certainly influenced my decision to do the play. I wasn't so sure about doing the play when it was first presented to me, and uh, and the more I had conversations with, what was what you know, I just your I feel like I was under the influence of a lot of the stigmas that have been attached to the boys in the band over the last fifty years. Yeah. Um, I had never. Uh, seen the play or read the play before this experience. I'd never seen the movie. And so I feel like I was a little bit ignorant, actually. Um, and the more I had conversations with Joe Mantello, Ryan Murphy, um, Jim, Joe Matt, is Andrew, the director, Joe's, and Ryan yeah, is one of the producers. Yeah, right, yeah. totally. Then the more I understood the relevance and the power of the piece. And, uh, and I think because of the friendships, I didn't want to miss out on the experience, you know? And uh, I'm so glad that, that I decided to do it. I think I would be probably kicking myself in a corner somewhere if I had said no and then had to come see how much fun everybody's having. I'm really glad to be a part of it. Uh, the your night at the uh, on stage involves eating a fair amount of lasagna. It turns out it's true. Um, the play takes place at a birthday party for right. my character Harold, and uh, and dinner is served in the middle of the party. So uh, yeah, so I and and my character is they they talk a lot about how my character starves himself and then gorges at one meal, and so I have to kind of wolf down this plate of lasagna and salad. Um, which is fine, but you know, like I factor it into my sort of like my meal plan, if right, you will. Sure. Yeah. But the other night, I was then I have lines, you know, while I'm eating. Yeah, the uh-huh. other the other night, I I was eating, wolfing down the salad, and I inhaled a, a leaf of lettuce, oh. and I started choking on stage. Uh, like was, actually, like Heimlich yes, level no, no, choking. Well, wow. not not no, not Heimlich but level choking. I could still coughing, breathe, but yeah, I couldn't yeah. really talk. So my voice got really warbly, and like that sounded like that as I was giving my life. <laughs> oh, no. Did you get whacked on the I back? I almost or stopped the yeah. play, but I, but I but I'm always so um, I, I don't just the the idea of 
crossing that line and breaking the illusion and being like, I'm actually, I have to stop the play. Felt, okay. uh, so I, I went as far as I could, and, and luckily I was able to push through and just... My character's also drinking a bottle of wine during right, the play, right. so I have water at my arm's right. reach. So I was lucky. <laughs> right. If I didn't have water, I absolutely would have had to stop. Right. Anyway, but so eating on stage is its own kind of stagecraft. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what did you... You talked about... Um, you sort of believed the stigma that had kind of attached itself to the play over the years. What ended up sort of turning you uh, into, like, what is its resonance now um, for you? Well, I've been shocked, actually, at how um, viscerally audiences have responded to Mm -hmm. the play. First of all, how funny it remains. Mm -hmm. The humor, I think, really translates through the the decades, and that's a testament to Mark Crowley and and, and his... Mark is the playwright. Mark is the playwright, yes. And that is a testament, I think, to his skill and the way he's you know so um subtly crafted the play to go from humorous to dramatic and and also punctuate it with humor throughout so even as the play gets heavier there are these moments of great relief that come um for the audience um and you know i i i feel like the the relevance of the play is just how human the themes of self-hatred are actually that they're not relegated to the LGBTQ community. They're they're framed in that context here, um, and and they are juxtaposed and set against the social context of the time in 1968, where there was real mainstream um, dismissal of, uh, in this case, gay men. Uh, and and their psyches and their their issues and the subtlety of them and the complexity of them and um, and and I think just the idea of how far we've come in fifty years certainly socially and politically and legislatively, but also um, I don't think it's easier in two thousand eighteen to love yourself than it was in two th- in nineteen sixty eight. You know, right? Um, I think it's harder. You factor in technology, you factor in social media. Yep. Um, and I, I think the idea of struggling with your own self-worth and your own value and your own place in society, whether you're a member of a minority uh, group or not, I think it's still incredibly difficult, and I think that that resonates in this play. It's told through the lens of these gay men, but I don't think that it's specific to gay men, and I think that's what audiences, gay, straight, male, female... Um, have really responded to and identified with. Yeah. And the character, you mentioned the character you play, Harold, is um, talked about a lot. You make sort of a grand entrance because mm. it's, you, you know, your party and mm-hmm. you can show up when you, or Harold can yes. show up uh, when he, <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I sort of liken it to um, like that role Maureen and Rent where the Dina Menzel role where mm-hmm. like she doesn't show up for half the mm-hmm. show and then you have to live up to that character yeah. they've been talking about. Yeah. Um, how, how did you go about kind of creating him? I feel like you're doing a whole lot just vocally and physically as well as kind of interior work as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly would say I started um, in L.A. where we rehearsed the play, um, more with the physicality and the interior life of the character. The vocal choices came later. Mm. Um, My whole, uh, I don't know, my whole experience, I mean, the last Broadway play I did was in the same theater, in the Booth Theater. We did The Glass Manager. Oh, that's great. It was in that theater. That's right. for sure. Um, so, so I have a, I have a relationship to that space, right. and one of the things that I came into our tech process once we moved the show back to New York and into previews uh, with was an idea that I wanted to 
um, I wanted to come under vocally the the space as much as I could, mm. and so like in the first week of rehearsal, explain that a little bit. More. Uh, I didn't I didn't want to overplay the space vocally. Okay, if that makes sense, right? Okay. Like I didn't want to push, and so in the first like few days of tech rehearsal, Mantella would be like, I literally can't hear anything you're saying, <laughs> and I was like, seriously, like I feel like I'm. Really, you know, so vocally, I feel like I had to evolve choices that relate to the character in order to fill the space. And so it became a little bit broader, a little bit more uh, of an affect as uh, as tech went on. Um, The character is really grand. Uh, One of the one of the most interesting things about Harold, I find, is that of the nine characters you meet in the boys in the band i feel like harold is the one who has taken his self-loathing and transformed it transformed it into power a kind of power so he doesn't really care what other people think about him or feel about him he is what he is he is who he is unapologetically and grandly um he dresses in a grand manner he moves in a grand manner uh, and he speaks in a grand manner, and so um, so that that was really fun. And and you know there were certainly touchstones in my life, um, ca- characters, real life characters who sure. I know and who I've drawn on to a certain extent. But um, but I I think Harold is a unique creature, and I think he's a creature that exists in a special and uh, unparalleled kind of space. And so I, I had a lot of fun playing with that. He's a former ice skater, so he's got a dancer's quality about him. Um, you know, he's he's he thinks he's ugly, um, and I think probably by all accounts, you know, he picks at his face. They talk about that. There's yeah. a lot of self-loathing in Harold, but but he's really, I think, transformed it into something that that allows him to rise above everyone else and everything else around him. Right. Yeah. At, so overlapping with the run of boys in the band is uh, Angels in America, which mm-hmm. is another sort of landmark of depiction of uh, the lives of the gay life in New York, mm-hmm. um, which is a play you've been in. You were uh, uh, in the signature production. Yeah, in, I did the last in, in New York production of, yeah, uh, you, of you, Angels in America. And then in addition to uh, boys in the band and Angels in the fall, we've got uh, Torch Song coming mm-hmm. after the uh, original, or rather, the off-Broadway revival. Right. It's, a, it's a transfer. Which I also saw. Yeah, yeah, second yeah. stage. Yeah, right. And is that and that's going into the to the old Helen Hayes to the second stage space? Right? Uh, yes, is, yeah, yeah, it is. Right. Yeah, right. Cool. Um, and that you know is another sort of landmark gay drama, mm-hmm. that, and they're all sort of happening in this mm-hmm. bunch. What do you feel like accounts for the interest in these plays? Well, I think the political landscape has a huge influence on uh, the relevance of these plays, and. Uh, the the marking of the progress we've made and also the acknowledgement that we are existing right now in a really hostile political climate with regard to the LGBTQ community and our rights and our um our, our the, the the ground we've gained in the last 10 15 years uh, specifically and uh, and I think theater in that context can be a real call to arms and I think that's what we're looking at here you know Let's look at what it was like before Stonewall, before the dam broke, and before we were able to experience the movement of liberation that really shaped um, the progress of gay identity into the 70s and you know pre-AIDS crisis. And then let's look at the AIDS epidemic in Angels in America, uh, and let's identify the political adversaries that we had to confront uh, and the progress we had to fight for and that you know many people had to sacrifice 
their lives for and and let's look at you know gay relationships in torch song and and what it was like to um have relationships with families and uh, and what that meant and what that means now in a current day and age where you know lgbtq families are uh, are much more prevalent in our society so i i think all of these are in response to um the political landscape that that we are currently struggling through um you know and i also think that theater revives itself and comes back around and themes of theater are um are echoes you know and the continuum of theater is part of what makes it such a unique art form and uh, and so i think you know it's it's natural for these works from 25 35 and 50 years ago to be coming back into play now let's talk a little bit about in search of oh okay uh, sure is coming up yeah um how did it come about how did what was the i was approached by uh ben silverman who runs propagate content um they have a partnership with nbc who had the rights to the original series which was on in the late 70s early 80s and hosted by leonard nimoy so i think they they were like well we want to redo this show and obviously the most forgive the pun, but the most logical choice for uh, the host would be me. So they came to me and asked if I'd be interested in it, and I said I I would be theoretically, but there are a couple of um, caveats, I suppose, one of which is that I would want to produce as well, and, and the other is that I really wanted to take a, a new tact on, on the show. Like, yeah. the original was Leonard in a studio, often in like a blazer and a turtleneck yep. sort of welcoming the audience into the experience and then passing it off to a pre-taped package of whatever topic they were diving into. And I said, you know, if if I'm going to be a part of this, I want to be on the ground. I want to be traveling. I want to be exploring. I want to be interviewing. I want to be engaged um, on on a different level. And they seemed really open to that. So so once we kind of ticked those boxes, then we got into developing the format and then we got into hiring a creative team and pitching the project and uh we sold it to history um so it'll, it'll start airing july 20th on history channel yeah and is our sort of unexplained <laughs> phenomena things you've always been interested in to a certain extent you know um i'm, I'm a pretty curious person by nature I, I like to engage um things that i don't know a lot about and and learn things and i love to travel and so it felt like a cool opportunity to do uh, all of that you know um, so we've done 10 episodes. Some of them are more blue chip, as they say, like um, homage to the original series. So, and, and I think history was really into that idea. Like, let's do aliens. Let's do monsters of the deep. You know, some of the more famous episodes of the original In Search of were sure. Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and like things that we obviously know now um, have, have been debunked. Um, so I, I went I went with them on that, but I said I also want to explore um, a different kind of unknown, right? Like, like what's the unknown of technology? Where is artificial intelligence taking us? Um, how can we look at things like mind control um, with the advancements of technology that we've experienced in the last 40 years? What do we know about life after death now that we didn't know 40 years ago. So so I was really interested in pushing the envelope in that direction. Right. Um, so we do have episodes on, on those three topics. And then we have um, 
you know, one of the most surprising episodes for me was an episode we did on sinkholes, mm. which was something that I was like, really, I want yeah. sinkholes? Like, who cares? But it was incredibly moving because we got to experience and interview people who were personally impacted by this natural phenomenon that very little is really, well, actually, I wouldn't say little is known about, but, but they're very unpredictable and they're very... Um, you you never know when and where they're going to strike. And so, you know, they've been known to open up in the middle of neighborhoods. Whole houses have been swallowed. People have been, you know, lives have been lost. And so that was really unexpected for me. Um, we did a two-part episode on the lost city of Atlantis. So we got to travel Ooh, to cool. Italy and Greece and Morocco. And, um, yeah, it was really, it was a really great um, few months of yeah. traveling and learning a lot about things I didn't know anything about. Right. And you, it sounds like you got to know Leonard Nimoy th- during your time working on the, on yeah, the Star Trek. Yeah, we became very uh, close. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, obviously you are, as you said, you were the logical choice for this mm. reboot. Like, you are closely associated with him. Mm-hmm. How has that, how has your link to him kind of been professionally and personally significant to you? Well, I mean, professionally, um, you know, stepping into such an iconic role, um, one of the most recognizable characters in the world, Spock, um, right up there with Mickey Mouse and yeah, Jesus, that's actually not know. an exaggeration. It's not right? an exaggeration. Yeah. It's yeah. like actually proven. Um, so I feel like there was um, there was great comfort in having his support, his um, his approval, first of all, and then his support. What I couldn't have anticipated was that the friendship that would evolve and um, the almost paternal connection that we would share. You know, Leonard was actually interestingly the same age as my father, who died when I was seven. So there was this kind of this kind of profound connection that we shared, and this um, this familial bond that I that I really came to um, value and appreciate in 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 my experience with him. Um, we were very close friends for about the last decade of his life, and uh, and and then you know the echoes of that, the reverberations, and the idea that I would get to kind of carry on the mantle of his work in another way was appealing to me. You know, I mean, we live in a very different time, and uh, when Leonard was creating the role of Spock and uh, inhabiting the role of Spock, um, attention spans were a lot longer. And there was, a, you know, there was, a, a, I think, a more indelible association with things. But I don't feel the, the gravitational pull of that now like he did. And so I, f- I felt like it was a great opportunity to honor him, to, um, to stay connected to him, but also to take something and, and put my own spin on it, you know. And that's, I think, what we've really attempted to do with In Search Of. Yeah. We should also mention that you had a part in a movie that came out fairly recently, Hotel Artemis. Yeah. With a great cast, like Jodie yeah, Foster, et cetera. Right, right. Um, what tends to excite you about the projects that you end up well, with? Well, it, it, for me as an actor, anything that subverts expectations, mm-hmm. either my own expectations or other people's expectations of me, um, are, are instantly m- more like, you know, if I, I would say 90% of the sci-fi or horror scripts that I get, I just dismiss out of hand because I'm not interested in perpetuating the same kind of um, expectations of the work that I would do. So I, I want to push things in a new direction. So if it's a, a genre piece or a sci-fi piece, it has to have you know a real um, element of surprise or a really... Um, unique component, like a like a great filmmaker, or um, uh, a, you know, just like a really cool device or framing um, conceit. Um, and if it's uh, and and so and I like characters that are complex. I like characters that are um, 
intellectually driven in some way. You know, I love political material. I love um, I love government stuff. You know, whether it's shadow government or espionage stuff, I'm, I'm interested in all of that. Um, I, I'm really interested in, in comedy more and doing mm. m- more comedy. I'm about to do a few episodes of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which I'm excited about. And oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, you know, just kind of getting into territory that's a little brighter than stuff I've done is right. is something I'm interested in. And, and The Boys in the Band has been a real joy for me in that yeah. regard because it is riotously funny. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel like just kind of looking at things that would make sense and then going in the other direction, basically. Right, yeah. And... Throughout all of this, you pretty regularly make your way back to the stage. Mm-hmm. You know, your last theater credit was just a couple of years ago at, the, yeah. at MCC, right. Smokefall, right? Right. Um, what keeps bringing you back? I'm never happier than when I'm doing a play. I'm never more comfortable than when I'm on stage. Um, I, you know, I started acting on stage, so when I was 11 years old, um, that's how I got... Well, who'd you play? Uh, I was a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz, oh, nice. Gordon. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, and I started simultaneously studying theater and, and, and working as a, you know, as a, as a kid um, on theater before I started doing anything else. So I think it's because I feel most at home on stage that I keep coming back to it. And because I just think it is, to me anyway, um, the most rewarding for an audience and for for actors to to share in um, to share in the, the the storytelling at the same time in the same space breathing the same air no two nights are the same um, there's something incredibly unique about it and and if you consider the origins of the art form um, you know they trace back to ancient times and they were something um, back then. Um, that had a spiritual undercurrent. You know, there was something, um, there was something very devotional about the idea of theater. And I think there's something really, I don't know, not to get too kind of lofty about it, but there is something really profound about the lineage of theater. When I was doing The Glass Menagerie, you know, I felt this indelible connection to Tennessee Williams and, and, and this really profound understanding of you know what he was struggling against 75 years before I got in there Um, but the echoes of my own personal life and my own journey and how closely they mirrored his um, that was really profound for me you know that was something that was really cathartic and therapeutic I think in a lot of ways to do that play Um, and it allowed me to have a, a, a deeper respect and understanding for his creativity and, and who he was and the things that he was trying to capture in his work and also the things he was trying to escape you know and I think Tennessee is an example of somebody who never really escaped um, he wrestled with his demons and I think ultimately his demons won yeah. um, but I just you know I have profound reverence for that struggle and and I think the theater is a medium in which um, that struggle is kind of laid bare, and that to me, I, I really love. Yeah. And you've had some really big, uh, sort of signature roles in the theater, right? Like Lewis and and Tom and Harold. Now, are there any other on your bucket list that you feel like, oh, that one I want to try sometime? <laughs> I mean, the only role that I know I want to do in my life is Sweeney Todd. Okay, you know, are you uh, a singer? 
I am. I, went, I studied musical theater. I, I went to school for musical theater at Carnegie Mellon, so I've got a piece oh. of paper that says I'm a singer. All right. Well, um, it must be true. But then. I haven't kept it up. You know, I would have to really dive into a, a, um, a, a hardcore kind of... But I, but I want to, and I feel like it's interesting. Sweeney Todd was the first... I mean, I remember I was probably 12 years old. They were doing it at the Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera with Karen Morrow and, um, and John Cipher. Hmm. And because I was in this like kids performing group we were uh, invited to the dress rehearsal and so we were uh, at the invited dress I was sitting on the floor of the mezzanine the first row of the mezzanine leaning with my elbows up on the sort of balustrade and you know that opening starts with uh, with the the music and and it builds and builds and builds the Mm -hmm. pipe organ to that or that work whistle blast yeah and i just remember so viscerally getting thrown back and and i was like i didn't understand how scary theater could be and how 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 evocative it could be and i just like i threw myself back into the seat and i was just like my stomach dropped out and i was like and then I just got drawn into this story that is so incredibly woven and so brilliantly told, and the music is so powerful. And and so from that moment on, I was really hooked. I didn't understand the power of theater until that moment. And so I feel like it's a role I have to play someday. And, and interestingly, you know, the stuff I've done in film and television, Heroes, American Horror Story, these villainous characters that I've played really lend themselves to I think that yeah, they're role. like prep work for yeah, Sweeney, a little right? bit you know yeah. and, and I think audiences will respond uh, in kind so for for all the producers out there who are you know all right. Interested in the bottom Sweeney line. Todd, let's make it happen. Yeah. yeah. I'm a little young yet. I got, yeah. I've got a few years, but it's certainly one I want to do. Cool. Well, I can't wait to see it good, when it good. happens. Yeah. Um, thanks a lot for being here. Yeah. Today. Thanks nice for to having talk me, to you. man. Pleasure yeah, to talk care. to you. Appreciate it. That was Zachary Quinto, now starring on Broadway in The Boys in the Band and hosting and producing In Search Of on the History Channel. If you're enjoying what you've heard on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe wherever finer podcasts are dispensed. On the next episode of Stagecraft in two weeks, I talk to director Michael Mayer and choreographer Spencer Liff, two of the creators of Broadway's new Go-Go's musical, Head Over Heels. Until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.